The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Whether you are the CEO of a nationally known firm, the chief of a medical team, a little league coach, the person responsible for a local food bank, or a parent trying to keep the house, the kids, and the job on track, who you are is how you lead. Our guest expert today is Rachel Ryder. She is the founder of MetaWorks and the author of a wonderful and important book, Who You Are is How You Lead. Rachel will be discussing themes and techniques which she uses as an executive coach that are applicable to leadership positions across most venues. In this powerful book, she draws upon contemplative studies, somatic experiencing, psychological theory, and an extensive business background. Rachel discusses the tools that she uses to help leaders understand that people are the deliverables. And she discusses that the relationship we have with ourselves is the key relationship. Rachel Ryder founded MetaWorks in 2015 after a distinguished career in HR. She has an executive coaching certification from Columbia University and an extensive training in meditation, somatic experiencing, and polarity therapy. Starting as an HR business partner responsible for developing and coaching leaders and teams at Bloomberg, she went on to specialize in leadership coaching at AppNexus, DigitalOcean, she studied under the renowned and Zen mountain master, monastery founder, John Dato Lori Rashi, and his successor for over 13 years. In addition, since 2020, Rachel has been working intensively with an anti-racism coach. Her various extensive personal training underscore her aim to bring leaders tools to really unlock effective, long-lasting change in concert with mind and body. Rachel lives in New York with her husband and two little sons, Rachel Ryder. It is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So the title, MetaWorks, what does that mean to you? What can we understand about that? Metta is a word from um, the Buddhism's language Pali, which means loving kindness. And so my company is named Loving Kindness Works. Um, but I do want to okay. make it clear that loving kindness in this context does not mean being a doormat. It does not mean rolling over and over accommodating. It really means holding compassion in your heart for yourself and others. Okay. So one of the first um, themes or early themes you bring out is that attending to relationships is key to successful leadership. Uh, maybe debrief that for us a little bit. 
I work with leaders that work in the upper echelons of organizations. And so when you are in charge of a large organization, um, and I would I would say this is probably true for any realm of your life, but particularly for large organizations, your deliverables don't necessarily mean that those are your goals. They're not the KPIs, the numbers that you need to meet in sales that actually when you are very high up in an organization, your deliverables are your relationships with your people because your people are those people delivering on the sales numbers are meeting the KPIs. And so it's really vital that you are paying attention to your people. You're helping them feel seated and heard. You're communicating clear expectations, helping them understand what success looks like, fostering trust. That's the only way your people are going to be successful in their role, which is what makes you successful. Now, one of the things that's really a theme of the book is that very often a person would swear to you that their care of their employees and the well-being of their employees, they're all about that. And you sort of imply sometimes they really don't know that that is not how they're coming across. Mm-hmm. And one of your first, I mean, you have a number of skills that come under MetaWorks. And one of them is identifying your drivers or helping the people to identify their drivers. Let me just step aside and say, um, Rachel, do people volunteer to come to you and seek you out or are they recommended by an, uh, someone over them to come to you? It's a mix. It's a mix. Okay. Um, these days, it's mostly self-selected because our leaders run organizations and they decide they want help. Over the years of our work, we've had organizations nominate leaders and sponsor the, that leader's coaching to work with us. I will say rarely was it against the leader's will. Often the leader was really grateful that the organization said, hey, we want to invest in you. We want to help you. Something's not working. So in all cases, everyone was on board. Okay. So now let's go back to what, what do you mean when you talk about identifying your drivers? You know, this is talked about a lot pervasively, which is understanding your why. What gets you up in the morning? Why are you in this role doing what you're doing? This is a really vital piece of information that you have for yourself because it helps you make better decisions in the moment. If I'm showing up for my job because I simply want to pay checks so that I can feed my family, that's great. And that helps you make a decision based on salary versus a decision of, I have this job so I can gain experience for the next job, then you're seeking out different opportunities. And so just knowing what matters to you in the moment helps inform decisions later. And so it's really important that you know why you're here, why you're showing up every day, what you care about, because that's going to help drive clarity for you. And that probably is um, applicable no matter what you're doing. You know, so if someone realizes that they're doing it because of not for the paycheck, if it's it's let's say it is a a food pantry, but because they love people and they love giving back. When people say, why would you spend all that time doing that? They have a very good reason of why they'd spend time doing that. Now, one of the questions you ask when people are a little bit, I guess, confused about this or rather you correct me. One of the things you you seem to focus on with your clients is, are they aware of how they're coming across to other people, the cultivation Mm -hmm. of awareness? 
And yeah. how do you do that? So often a client comes to MetaWork saying something isn't working. Sometimes they have a clear sense. I'm getting feedback that I'm hypercritical or I feel like I have to say yes all the time. I don't know how to say no. So, so often there's an inkling. But there isn't a clear sense of why the problem is happening. And so that's the cultivating awareness piece is understanding how we're showing up in a moment, who I am in terms of in this moment with someone else and, and to start to collect data around that. And this is really important. I had a client who, um, who her name is Suni in the book. She has very sharp elbows. Her, um, her best friend is the CEO. They founded the company together and she was nominated um, to work with me as a coach because no one wanted to work with her. Mm. And that was confusing for her because she felt she deeply cared about her team, deeply cared about the company. And, and that's why she felt like she was so demanding because she cared about results and her people. And so it was a little confusing to her when she showed up with me. She's like, I don't understand why people are saying, you know, I'm difficult to work with. Like, I, I mean, I get, I, I feel like I'm in it more than anybody else. I'm invested. Mm. I care so much. And so the cultivating awareness piece for us was to first help her understand what is the body language in reactions to her in the room when she says certain things, mm. how can we help her to read the room in a new way to understand, Oh, what is happening when someone reacts poorly? What might be coming out of her mouth? What did she actually mean? Uh, a real theme with her was she would give someone a compliment and then say, okay, so how do we do this better next time? And so the compliment <laughs> yeah. was kind of lost, you know, in her yeah. mind, she's like, no, 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 you're doing a good job, but let's, okay, let's do better. And the other person only heard not good enough. Yeah. I think and, at some point yeah. you say, um, if you say to someone that was great, but You've just disqualified the beginning. I think she was the person yeah. that you wrote about. Yes, no, yeah. that is exactly yeah. it. And and I want to be clear because it's funny in um in leadership 101, the replacing but with and is a given. But <laughs> I would go further and I would say you need to change your energy around it. You can't just replace the word. You need to actually make it clear you believe the person did a great job. Mm -hmm. You did mm -hmm. an amazing job. How do we take this further? How do we do more of that? That sounds very different from great job. So um, I think X, Y, and Z need to happen differently next time. You can feel it. There was no button that sentence. And yet the energy was still different. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds to me like, uh, Rachel, you're, you're also sort of um, um, exemplifying with the client exactly more and more productive ways of interacting. Because even as you're telling someone with sharp elbows, Mm, the butt or whatever, you're really not ever making this person feel less than, but, right, you know, exactly. supporting, supporting her effort to seek help and even the positives that she did. So um, it's, it's quite a gift when they get referred to you. Uh, <laughs> you under, under this idea of what am I doing right or wrong? And is what a technique you call um, collecting data and reading the room? Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I love the term collecting data because it really depersonalizes the dynamics going on. Um, before we can truly solve a problem, we really need to know the issue. And even if someone comes in to work with me presenting the issue, 
I want to help us understand if that's the true assessment, if there's more going on. And so we need to collect data. And so um, a great example of this is I had a client where he had put in a lot of effort to create a leadership bench under him. Um, and that means, you know, hiring senior leaders to take some of his responsibilities so that he could have a bigger vision strategy. But then it was time to present to the board and he was really nervous. He's like, I, the board's going to think I do nothing now, now that I've hired this great <laughs> team, you know, and, and I said, okay, from my extensive experience, I know actually there's a lot to give him credit for, for hiring a senior team. That's a really big deal. Right. And we needed him to feel clear if that's the case, if he could trust that actually he's doing his job correctly. And so I said, listen, when you go into the board meeting, I want you to just pay attention to how it goes. Who are they talking to? How are they responding? Let's collect some data because you're not going to get fired over one board meeting. However it goes, we'll take the data when we'll assess and decide what to do That's next. Great. And he came back and he's like, I said, how'd it go? And he said, oh my God, Rachel, first of all, I'm really proud of the team I hired because they were so well prepared. They presented beautifully. And I said, that's amazing. That's terrific. How did you know? And, and he talked through all the examples of the board asking difficult questions and his team being on it. And I said, great. And how are you feeling? He said, you know what? There were questions that my team couldn't answer that weren't appropriate for them. They were strategic, long-term questions, numbers questions. And I was able to answer those and I felt really good about it. And the board was really engaged and felt impressed by my answers. And so this is exactly what I'm talking about in terms of data collection is checking out what's happening in the room. And so actually that real concern of his was revealed as, oh, maybe non-existent. Mm -hmm. He's got mm -hmm. this. Not only does he, he have this, he's doing a really good job. Yeah, and the whole idea that you gave him this skill is very different than him going in nervous, his head down, feeling already he didn't do something right. It just changes the entire scenario. Exactly. It, it's such a great example. Um, so do you have some folks who have a hard time understanding what you're saying when you talk about collecting the data or they're so anxious they can't quite do it? Yes. And that's where the somatic experiencing piece really comes into play. I'm trained in a three-year um, nervous system, self-regulation of the nervous system training. It's beautiful. Anyone un unfamiliar with somatic experiencing, check out Peter Levine. Um, but this is the piece where I really think MetaWorks distinguished itself in the industry, which is we do attend to the cognitive and the belief system, but we also attend to the nervous system. The nervous system holds a great deal of wisdom and also old patterning. And so when a client is a little confused about how to even collect the data or they're clouded by their anxiety, I take them back to their body and that's where the data collection starts. Yeah. How can you tell you're anxious? What's happening in your body when you're anxious? Oh, my jaw starts to clench. My heart starts to beat fast. Okay. That's your new assignment. Notice when you start getting anxious, collect data on what is the moment it starts how does it feel in your body? So the data collection becomes really deeply internal before even looking external. And that's what can be very powerful as well. It makes so much sense because we know that if you can't regulate, you can't reflect. 
So, well, you know, if you can't calm down, you're unable to take a look at what's going on, both with you and the rest of the people in the room. Now, when you introduce something like that, and we're going to take a break in a minute, does anybody resist? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and it's a much it? longer answer, but oh. you said we'll take a break. So okay. um, there's a lot of power in resistance. I like to say that when there's resistance, it means we're on the right track. It means we're starting to touch things within ourselves that don't want to be looked at. And okay. so when someone starts to resist, I'm like, all right, great. We're there. We're there. <laughs> okay. We're going to take a brief break. <clears throat> You've been listening to Rachel Ryder. She's the founder of MetaWorks and the author of a fascinating and important book, Who You Are Is How You Lead. She has integrated tools rarely seen in the coaching world that make a remarkable difference. You've already heard her talking about them. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Bright Horizons College Coach, a team of former admissions and financial aid officers, the show takes a deep dive on subjects such as choosing the best essay topic, negotiating merit aid, and navigating the common app. Listeners will learn what really goes into college acceptance decisions from the experts who used to make them. New episodes drop Thursdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get Unchained. Tune in every Wednesday for Unchained TV on the Voice America Variety Channel. Featuring nationally recognized, best-selling author, TV journalist, and the founder of the Unchained TV free streaming network, Jane Velez Mitchell. This program takes you inside a trending lifestyle that's the next wave of human evolution. It all starts on your plate. If you want to revolutionize your life, get happier, more energized, then discover the secret. Tune in to Unchained TV, Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. I was just asking my guest, Rachel Ryder, who is the author of the wonderful new book, Who You Are is How You Lead. We were giving some examples of the workplace and how she intervenes with 
those pretty high up, actually quite on the top, who are having difficulty with their leadership and or their production, et cetera. And I asked her, well, what happens if someone resists your suggestion or what the theme that you're developing with them? And you can take it from there, Rachel. I really, I think that resistance is a gift because it's it's a marker that's saying, oh, we're on the right path here. And so the premise of my work is never to push through, but to actually sit with until things dissolve. Because pushing through, I like to talk about a rubber band effect. If, if you're pushing too hard through something, that rubber band's going to stretch really quick and then boing, bounce right back. And actually not just bounce back, but it's going to get smaller. Versus right. a rubber band that you stretch slowly over time, you know, it kind of loses its shape, it gets really large. That's what we're looking for when we're looking at a change in habits. And so when in, and when I encounter resistance with my clients, and that might look like, no, that's wrong, or no, I don't want to do that. Or I've been, Rachel, we've been working on this for so long. I keep wanting to not lose my temper, and I just keep losing my temper. To me, that's a sign of resistance. So it just keeps happening, even though I don't want it as a sign of resistance to me. And that tells me that we are very close to touching and changing a survival mechanism. And this is a place that is very, I, I, I tread very respectfully because survival mechanisms are some of the most precious things to us as human beings. They have gotten us to where they are, where we are. And so the place that I begin when we encounter resistance like that is to first understand resistance is usually the thing that is hiding fear and that survival mechanism. And so first I want to understand, okay, what's really scary about not having a temper anymore? What comes up for you? So we're not even trying to change anything. We're just trying to understand why it might keep happening, why we don't want to change, even if why, we say it too. Why they needed that temper somewhere along the line. Exactly. I have some favorite activities I do with survival mechanisms because I am a, a real believer just in my own personal work and the work I do with leaders that survival mechanisms actually have golden nuggets of wisdom that we do not want to let go of. Some parts of them, they are they get in the way, but some pieces we want to keep. Um, and so the work is first to praise the survival mechanism. I love to invite my clients to do something where we talk about the avatar of their survival mechanism. I had a client once who, speaking of bad tempers, it was pretty dangerously bad at work. He was very highly regarded, but his temper was getting so bad that there was concerns if he could stay. Mm -hmm. And the piece of work we did was around the survival mechanism, his temper, keeping him safe. And I asked him, you know, when you think of your temper, does it take an avatar or a form? And he said, yeah, he used to play. He said he was a big dude and he used to play football in college. He says, yeah, it feels kind of like a football player. You know, he's not afraid to tumble around. He gets rewarded for that. And I said, what if we threw your football player a party? What would that look like? How would it feel? Tell me who's there. What's the food? And even as I think about it now, it's so deeply moving because I could feel him soften in such a way and him feel seen 
and appreciated in such a way to acknowledge that this piece of him had taken care of him for so long. Mm. And when someone's acknowledged, they don't feel like their voice needs to be as loud. You know, it's almost like his, his anger and temper was like, oh, you see me now. Okay. I don't have to be screaming all the time. And so that's a really beautiful first step before you take the golden nugget of that survival mechanism forward and give that survival mechanism a new job. First, we have to throw it a party. Mm. It's it's so true. And I love your intervention. I've noticed this is a psychological phenomenon too, that this one of the tip-offs on the survival mechanism is it seems often to be excessive. That mm-hmm. is, mm. some people, their only way to survive a childhood was to be perfect. And so yeah. they will disrupt the whole team if someone says, you know what, let's let that go. And we'll just use this. No, that is not possible. It is not possible for them. The mm-hmm. other thing is they have to be the giver. Mm-hmm. Some people, no matter what happens, you're going to receive a gift for it. And if if whether it's holiday or whatever, they must be the major giver or they are not safe. So there's an excessive quality. It's worth of us thinking about in terms of our own survival mechanisms. Well, they have to be not prepared, but overly prepared, more prepared than anybody else in the room. And so, um, and so in some ways, the, um, the excessive nature of it is the tip off on it. Yeah. I love to tell a story of my own survival mechanism, which is, um, my husband is a cook in our family and he does some beautiful meals and, it became this habitual response for me to walk into the kitchen and criticize him cutting vegetables. And I am, I am that person that you talk about where it's difficult to receive. It's much easier for me to give. And, but I didn't realize to the depth of that, I've done so much work on that, you know, but then to walk into the kitchen and be criticizing my husband cutting vegetables. He started before I would even say anything. He'd be like, you're doing it wrong, you know, kind of to preempt me. And it really brought attention to this fact. And so what I tried to examine is what happens if I don't say anything? And I felt myself starting to feel so vulnerable at the experience of him cooking dinner for us and me. And that, that, that reveal of that deeper survival mechanism inside and then getting to work with it in a new way is very powerful. So I'm just validating what you say that these, these survival mechanisms manifest in the strangest and most subtle ways. Mm. And when you can look at them with care and compassion for yourself, you have an even wider window to try to understand them, much less change them. Now, how does this, Rachel, relate to one of the things you say is work. Our work is where the demons go to hide. Yes. <laughs> That's an interesting comment. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I feel like there has been the world of therapy has been normalized, I think, a great deal over my lifetime, at least. You know, mm-hmm. so many people I know have therapists. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's a part of life. When someone struggles with an interpersonal relationship, they reach out for help. I think pretty fairly consistently, there's this divide in folks' psyche about work that, oh, I'm just showing up for work. That's not what's happening in my personal life 
probably doesn't translate to the workplace. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting because again, this happens on subtle levels. I have a client who's a CEO. She's very well-versed in therapy. She has her own meditation practice. You know, she's a very self-aware woman. And we've been talking about some of the dynamics that she is recreating in her organization that she wasn't even aware of that she has been working on in her personal life for a really long time. Now, the reason why I say these demons go to hide at work is because it didn't even occur to her to examine those dynamics in the workplace. So an example is she in her personal life over accommodates, says yes, makes herself small and then gets resentful. Now, why would that occur to her to look at when she is the CEO of an organization? And yet that's, she was made, she was creating a lot of craziness and toxicity on her team because she would do the same thing as the CEO. She would defer, make herself small, get resentful. And then people, there was confusion because people also looked to her for being in charge. And her and I started examining this and she looked at me and she had read my book, you know, cause she was one of my clients and she said, oh my God, Rachel, you're right. Work is where your demons go to hide because all of the work she had done in her personal life, she never thought to examine in her professional world. And so that's what I'm saying is I'm saying we we think of work as a separate entity. And so then those demons that don't really want to leave us just kind of burrow themselves into the work dynamics and live there and flourish. You know, it makes me think that it there is even a kind of work mentality um, in terms of, uh, if I'm the head of an engineering company, I think it's a mistake on my part to attend to the emotional needs or a crisis that someone might have. Not my crisis, but the fact that how is it going to look if all of a sudden I um, ask this fellow to come in who who just had a crisis with his family? Uh, is it overcrossing? Is it stepping over a line? Does it make me seem weak? Does it make me seem intrusive? Will he feel like um, embarrassed in front of me? So I'm wondering about CEOs and people in charge in terms of their caution about addressing emotional um, issues, because we, we do know that how, how um, really successful can someone be if they're struggling with an emotional issue at home and nobody's taking a look at it? Precisely. And I, I really, I think there's two layers of that. One is that um, the person's own concerns is an indicator of their own stuff. So the way, just the way you describe that leader who's like, oh, am I being intrusive by asking them to come into work? I bet you that that is that leader's internal dialogue when working with their family. Am I being too intrusive if I'm asking them to help with dinner? Am I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so first, I just want to say that one of the premises of my work is to self-examine our own self-talk in the workplace. And how true is it? How real is it? But to really attend to your question, which is... um, what about attending to the emotional needs of your team? That's a really important question because I do want to be clear as leaders, we are not responsible for the emotional care of our people. They're not our therapist. We are not their therapists. We're not their life coach. And yet that is an aspect of our role, which is meeting someone where they are. 
We so therefore and and meeting them on an emotional level. And so that really means that we have to be able to get clear on how to engage with our folks interpersonally, where we don't take on the emotional turmoil of our team members, but we do hold and support them in that. And mm-hmm. that's a really important piece as a leader that I think the who you are is how you lead can allow you to start to unpack for yourself. Okay. So now when you think about some of the other uh, related steps, um, what do you mean when you talk about challenging assumptions? So I think actually the example that you just used is a beautiful one where the person say there is a leader who's worried about it being intrusive by asking someone to come in. I think it's really important to examine their own assumptions of what is intrusiveness. You know, we make presumptions within ourselves without even having a conversation with the other individual. We make presumptions within ourselves. I I really like to say that an example of knowing that we're making an assumption is if-then statements. If I do this, then this will happen. Implicit, that is an assumption we are making because there are so many options of what could happen if we did something. And so it's really important that when we hear that if-then language, we're actually examining okay, what constraints do I think I'm operating under? So if we're going to get specific, like if I, if I speak up, I am going to get fired. Okay. This is, I do not want you to be dismissive of someone having an instinct of, okay, there is an unsafe environment that I'm operating within. However, I do want us to work with and examine Will you get fired? And what does speaking up look like? And so what we're doing in this assumption of um, a statement, if I speak up, I will get fired, is we're unpacking the definitions of all of this language so that we can actually be clear on what the options are. Well, maybe speaking up isn't in a public forum of 50 people at a company meeting. Maybe speaking up is speaking to our colleague or, you know, maybe it isn't being fired, but there will be ramifications. What might those ramifications be and how comfortable are you with them? And so challenging assumptions is so vital in terms of opening up the options that someone has as a leader so that they don't feel stuck. And that's really profound for those, particularly at the top where the stakes feel so high in decision making. Are you ever in the position where... Um, it becomes clear to you that there are people on the team that have difficulties and that the problem isn't really so much with your main leader, but that he, he or she's lost control of of the team mm. and that there is an, a sort of a, a team leader, an elected team leader in the employees that is undermining your your CEO or your person who's the manager. Yeah, I mean, I we're really it's so funny. I I see this as like family dynamics. We're really talking about family dynamics and organizations. I don't want to call them families because that isn't true, but the interpersonal dynamics and the acting out and reenactment of relationships is powerful. And so when that kind of dynamic happens, The work between myself and the CEO is examining how is the CEO contributing to this, being complicit in this, and and, and being triggered by this. 
Because mm -hmm. the only work that we can do is the inner work with the CEO who can then have clarity on how to attend to it, how to engage with it. And that's really the premise of my work too, is once we can unpack the roadblocks within us, the answers in situations present themselves. So you would work with the CEO on what he sees or she sees um, is going on in terms of the department or the company, and then in terms of having his or her buy-in in terms of who's the ringleader, why is that person sort of sabotaging uh, the role, the production ideas, et cetera, you would, be, you would um, partner with the CEO or the person in charge in terms of how to best approach that kind of a situation. Yes. You know, I, I, again, I'm, I'm paralleling family dynamics, but you know, usually children don't see the therapist, the parents see the therapist. <sighs> Employees are all adults. Everybody needs their own therapist or coach, I think, right. in an organization. With that being said, the CEO is head of the organization and setting the tone. So if there are difficult dynamics happening in an organization, it's the CEO's responsibility to investigate and attend to them. They are the final decision maker. Mm, it's good. You're really good. Now, one of one of the quotes that you use um, is uh, from uh, Maya. Angelo, and I think it's so powerful, and I wonder what people react to it, that you, people you're working with. Um, and the quote is, I've learned that people will forget what you said, and people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. No. Is that a quote you've used with clients? Yeah, I even like to say, no one's listening to what you're saying. They're listening to how you feel because emotions are contagious. And so really, when it comes down to it, it's really important that we become really clear on how we feel inside and how we want someone else to feel in our presence. The more we can do that, the more the words will flow. And that's what matters. It's so relevant to when we think of contagion in a group or a family, where um, we're wondering why kids are acting out or wondering why um, something's happening even in a psychotherapy group and that everyone has picked up or the the anxiety or everyone's picked up the despair. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it makes sense in terms of even the, informing people of the dynamics. One of the things you do, Rachel, over and over again, is you make meaning of mm -hmm. what's going on in them and in the people that they're dealing with. And in that process, they feel respected, they're informed. And um, I think that's something then that really addresses the survival techniques. Yes, agreed. Thank you for that. Yes, I completely agree. Now, um, one of the things that I, I, I'm sure is difficult is um, nurturing new habits. Yeah. And one of the phrases you use is, it's not that someone all of a sudden hears cognitively about a, a new habit, and you use the phrase, um, it's not the case that one is done. Once you hear it, it doesn't mean you can do it. Um, so um, talk about, um, you say, forget imagination, habit is more dependable. Yes. Talk about that a little bit. 
so, and I am a huge fan of imagination, but if we want to change consistently, habits are the way to go. And I would say that habits are built by making them and then breaking them. Because when we break them, it brings our awareness back to, oh no, that's not actually what I wanted to do. I'm trying something different. And actually that cycle is very powerful and important for us to strengthen the habit we're trying to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do you feel that there is a difference gender-wise in the response of your clients? You're a female. Do you find females are more inclined to identify with what you say, see you as someone who has great expertise in a different way than your male clients? You know, no, actually. And we have a, an abundance of male clients. I find um, folks who want to work with us are very self-selective. We make it very clear the kind of work we do. And so anyone who shows up is saying, hey, I want to look at myself. I want to understand what's happening here so I can show up differently, so I can be really successful and also happy and also respected. So when they come to you, Rachel, most of the time they are feeling very positive about the fact that the company is giving them your expertise as an option to help them. Yes, although these days, usually it's the head of the company who comes. So um, companies are nominating less and usually we're we're working with the CEOs or C-suite anyway. So yes, everyone's excited to be here. <laughs> oh, so they are self-selected. It's a very different thing. Yes. Yeah. But even when those were folks were nominated over the years of work, they were. They were really appreciative that the company said, hey, we want to help you here. Clearly, you're struggling. We want to invest in you. We're... Metalworks, we are, we're not cheap. So, I think one of your examples, maybe be a good one to talk about, is someone who was not going to be able to go ahead. You didn't think he was going to make it. He to be the CEO. He was a CPO, I guess. That's um, yeah. head of production. I imagine uh, chief product officer. Oh, pro- okay. And how did that go? Because he wasn't going to get what he wanted, but you somehow had to address that. The disappointment. Well, and- Yes, actually, what happened was, is he, he before our work together, he wanted a CEO role and, um, or CP, he wanted to get promoted. And the company, there were folks that went to the CEO and lobbied against him because of how mm. poorly he was thought of. And that was a real awakening for him that he thought, you know, yeah, I have, you know, I, I rub people the wrong way. I bulldoze through things, but at the end of the day, I get things done. So it's not a big deal. And so what I think he found from this experience was like, oh, actually interpersonal relationships matter at this level. And so he left that job and and was stepping into a CPO role and knew he wanted to do it differently. And that's when he hired me. And so we had worked together a long time and he was doing very well. And then the company got acquired. And so he was feeling like he couldn't make the changes he used to make. He became this very well-respected leader. People sought out his opinion. And now the company was acquired into a much larger organization where his voice didn't matter anymore. Mm. And it was fascinating, the work we did together, because he was really feeling frustrated. And, And I said to him, well, we came back to his drivers. Why, Why stay? And when he examined it, he said, you know what? I would like to be a CEO of an organization this size. 
And so it doesn't hurt to understand how, how the inner workings happen in this organization. I said, okay, we're clear. You want to stay then. So what's hard for you? And he said, I feel like I can't get anything done and no one's listening. And this is a, a client who our work together had been that the only way he felt like he could get anything done was to threaten and cajole and steamroll. And so what was so interesting is that the survival mechanism underneath it was, I will get something done at any cost. Mm. And since we had that clarity, we were able to leverage the wisdom of the survival mechanism, which was, I will get something done at any cost. And let go of the steamrolling and just use the at any cost in a different way. So he started schmoozing. He started, you know, offering ideas and collaborating. And all of a sudden he started getting quoted in rooms he wasn't a part of. One mm -hmm. of my favorite stories around this time was someone advocated for headcount for his team without him even in the room and it wasn't even their team mm. that's how much he cultivated influence because of the survival mechanism get it done at any cost it had nothing to do with the temper it had to, to do with getting it done and so he was really flexible in changing up that behavior what do you think reduced the negative getting any there's a negative side to getting anything done at any cost what do you think helped him with regulation and the movement away from an angry get it done at any cost? One of the things we really worked on was urgency. You know, I like to talk about urgency as a trauma response because usually our sense of urgency is an over calibration. The house is not really on fire right now. I, you know, do not have an open heart in my hand right now. I don't usually work with surgeons. I work mostly with organizations in tech. And so um, the piece for him that I really think helped shift things was the evaluation and the constant orientation to what's urgent right now? What am I worried about? And consistently when he was able to ask that question, he was able to come back and say, oh, okay, this is not as urgent as I thought. And I can take different action because it is not as urgent. It's still important, but I don't need to do this email at 2 a.m. in the morning. I can go back to sleep. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Rachel Ryder. She's the founder of MetaWorks and the author of the fascinating and important book, Who You Are is How You Lead. Stay with us. We'll be right back. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Do you ever have an off day or is your life positive and uplifting? Making Life Brighter is a forum for positive, inspired, and contemplative thought, showcasing experts in their fields, including authors, musicians, and artists. Your host, Winifred Adams, will bring to life topics to stimulate and make your life brighter. We want to hear from you. Be sure to tune in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. As humans, we suffer when we believe we are not good enough. We are taught we must be better, look better, try harder, and achieve more. We cope with the stress and disappointment of life in ways that make us feel worse and keep us stuck in a cycle of unworthiness. We don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. 
Kirsten and her guests will share how self-acceptance and unconditional self-love can help you break this cycle and find freedom. Listen to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans, with Kirsten Johansson, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Burrows and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, we press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burrows and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific. Because everyone can make money in real estate. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. Um, I'm here with Rachel Ryder. She's the author of the wonderful book, who you are is how you lead. And we're almost out of time. One quote that I love, Rachel, is it's not that you'll be happy when you're a good leader. Actually, to be a good leader, you have to be happy. So on that note, I want to ask you if you would send our listeners a take-home message in terms of your work, your book. Mm. I like to talk about birth karma. We all are born with our own birth karma and our own family dynamics and our own different levels of trauma. And I firmly believe that that doesn't ever go away. It manifests in our lives and our professional world and our relationship to it can change profoundly. I've seen that for myself. I've seen that for my clients. And I really think that when you explore your own inner landscape, that's how that relationship can change. And I invite anyone listening to experiment with that, whether it's with this book, who you are is how you lead, or just data collecting of what lights you up during the day or what gets you upset and how do you know? I would start there. I think it really shifts your experience of your life in a profound and powerful way. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you for the book, which is really a gift to per- to anyone in any walk of life. It's really beautifully done and it gives so much in the way of tools for improvement. Rachel, how can people find your book? Check us out at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Goodreads, and we're on international bookshelves. Okay. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast by tonight at 5 p.m. Eastern. This will be a podcast on all the platforms, iPhone, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. But mostly until next week, please be safe, use self-care. Thanks and be listening.
thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.